Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. We're going to be in chapters 5 and 6 today. Try to cover two chapters. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so bear with me. So we've just seen Samuel established as a prophet. That's what happened in chapter 3. God revealed himself to Samuel in a special way and appointed him to be God's messenger, God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And so he's established him as a prophet even while he's training for priesthood and uh, leadership, spiritual leadership within Israel. And in chapter 4, the Philistines, these neighboring uh, opponents of Israel, uh, greater in strength at this time uh, than Israel, gather against them in battle. And so we saw the people of Israel went out to battle with the Philistines and things didn't go so well. They started losing the battle. And so then they, they regrouped and they asked this question, why is the Lord defeating us today? And instead of really reflecting on that and coming to a place of uh, repentance and sorrow about their sin and their rejection of God and his word, they uh, turned to their good luck charm of the Ark of the Covenant. What we need is the Ark. And so they call the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, to bring the Ark out into battle. And they think, victory is ours for sure. And of course, as the story unfolded, it did not go that way at all. In fact, they were utterly decimated in this battle, losing some 30,000 people. And the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And the priests of Israel, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in this battle. Which, of course, is God's unfolding plan. Right? God had already pronounced judgment upon Eli and his house and, and promised that, prophesied that he, his leadership and his priestly role would be removed, and he assured him that his sons would die on the same day. And indeed, that's exactly what happened in this battle in chapter 4. When Eli, the priest, uh, learned about um, the, the capturing of the ark, he fell over and broke his neck and died. And so the old leadership that was really devoid of righteousness and God's word, is gone. And God now has appointed and has raised up Samuel to stand in their place and to represent God to the people and lead them in righteousness. And then, of course, Samuel kind of disappears from the scene for this portion of the story. But chapters 5 and 6 follow the ark. So the ark of the covenant which is the kind of the symbolic representation of God's presence among his people. The ark is now in the custody of the Philistines. The enemies of God have the ark. This is bad news. That's why Eli died from shock. In fact, Phineas's wife, who was great with child, as the Bible would say, heard about the capturing of the ark, and she went into labor, and then she died shortly after childbirth. And she named her son. Anybody remember the name of the son? Ichabod, which means no glory. Where is the glory? Because the glory has departed Israel in the Ark of the Covenant being captured. So chapter 5 picks up following the Ark. And we're going to see the Ark go through this very interesting journey over about a seven-month period of time 
among the Philistines. And we're going to see two really important truths that God intends, I think, for the people of Israel to learn. And I think he intends for us to learn them as well as we look to this story and this example. And those truths are this. God will not share his glory. And God will not be diminished. God will not share his glory. And he will not be diminished or belittled. So we'll take those one at a time. Beginning in chapter 5, I'm going to read for you the first five verses. And we'll talk. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. This is obviously intended, by the way, as a symbol of Dagon, the pagan false god that the Philistines worship, of Dagon's defeat of Yahweh, Israel's God. They've placed the Ark of the Covenant into Dagon's temple, Dagon's house. This is like a trophy, right? Dagon has won. So let's see what happens. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Some... uh, Outside of the Bible, extra biblical historical accounts even recorded that up until like the first century AD, that practice, that custom was still observed in this land where they would not step on the threshold of Dagon uh, for this reason. So Yahweh has been supposedly defeated by Dagon. And so they've placed the ark in the temple of Dagon to demonstrate his superiority, his supremacy over Yahweh. And they're surprised to learn that maybe Yahweh is not quite done. Maybe he hasn't been overpowered after all. So the first night, he somehow just bumps Dagon to the ground, and they find him lying face down, as in submission and worship, before the ark of Yahweh. And they come and put him back in place. A pastor friend of mine in D.C. named Garrett Kell says of this, it is foolish to worship a God who needs your help. And this is what the Philistines are doing. They've got to pick him back up. Oh, sorry, Dagon, here you go. Let's put you back in your place. Indeed, Dale Ralph Davis, in reflecting on these verses, says the God of the Bible does not need us. And that's good news. He doesn't need us. That doesn't mean he doesn't want us. Doesn't mean he doesn't use us. Doesn't mean he doesn't have an important role and job for us to play, right? A calling to carry out. But that's just grace. That's just his kindness. God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our propping up. He is fine all by himself. And so he's teaching the Philistines a lesson here. 
So they put Dagon back in his place, and then the second day they come in, and he's fallen over again, but this time he's been decapitated, and his hands have been removed. This is utter defeat, right? Dagon is utterly and completely uh, destroyed before Yahweh, uh, just being in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. God is uh, attacking here uh, their God, and they recognize the defeat, and they begin to play hot potato with the Ark of the Covenant. We've got to get this thing out of here. And so verses 1 through 7, it's in Ashdod, which is the, the city of the Philistines where the house of Dagon is. But we're going to see it bounce around to three different Philistine cities, Ashdod and then Gath and then Ekron. And let's, let's read on and find out how things go for them there. Beginning in verse 6. The hand of the Lord, just to point out here, a little bit of irony, because Dagon has just fallen to the ground and had his hands removed. And now seven times, be on the lookout for this phrase, the hand of the Lord, the hand of Yahweh, is going to come up over and over again. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God, the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, which is another Philistine city. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. There's the third Philistine city. But as soon as the Ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the Ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So they don't bring out the welcoming committee. They bring out the nah not today committee. Like, we do not want the Ark among our city. Verse 11, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, that's the rulers in each of the five Philistine cities, and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They've had enough. They've cried uncle. All right, all right, we get it. We don't need Yahweh's ark in our presence anymore. We can't handle it. Our people are dying. Our people are breaking out in tumors. There's mention of some plague of mice. In fact, some scholars uh, associate this with the, the bubonic plague. So the tumors and the way that they're dying and the presence of all these mice or rats uh, could it be that that's what the Lord struck them with. But the bottom line is Yahweh is assaulting the people of Philistia. No matter where the ark goes, God is at work to judge and to afflict them with these plagues. 
And so by the end of verse 2 in chapter 6, they have had enough. Did you see all those times that the hand of God was mentioned? The hand of God is very heavy. The hand of God is against us. So God is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to his people without their help. All right? Once again, didn't need the people of Israel to help. He didn't send any Israelite leaders. Didn't even send Samuel on a mission. Like, go, hey, talk to the leaders of the Philistines and negotiate some kind of peace treaty so that they'll give you the ark back. God's like, no, I'm going to handle this. I'm going to take care of this myself. And so let's continue reading in chapter 6 to see how the Philistines go about getting rid of the Ark of the Covenant. They said, if you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, this, by the way, is the, like the priests of Dagon. So they've gone to the priests, the religious leaders of their pagan god, and, and said, how, how do we go about getting the God of Israel back to Israel? And so they said, if you send away the Ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. So they recognize, the priests recognize the, the hand of Yahweh is against us because of guilt in some way. Maybe they recognize that the t- they think the taking of the ark is their great crime. And so, well, if we give it back and we have these kind of guilt offerings, then maybe Yahweh will forgive us or at least leave us alone, right? And so they say, they say uh, verse 4, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. What a gift. Doesn't that sound... If you're thinking about, you know, a, a birthday gift for your loved one or a Christmas gift, might, might I recommend to you five golden tumors and five golden mice. Uh, at any rate, so they're making gold images of tumors and mice. So there's apparently ten items uh, that they place uh, on top of the ark. So it says five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. Remember, there's five Philistine cities, five lords, five rulers, So for each city, essentially, a tumor and a mouse. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Give glory to the God of Israel. What? I thought they were supposed to give glory to Dagon. Well, guess what? Dagon got beat. Yahweh has demonstrated his supremacy over Dagon in a very compelling way. And the people of Philistia, this is not to suggest that they're going to now like turn and become worshipers of Yahweh, but they at least recognize this God is not to be trifled with, right? We're not going to mess with him anymore. Give glory to the God of Israel. Continuing in verse 5, perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts? And again, the, Philist- the Philistines are going to demonstrate a good awareness of Israel's history. They actually did this back in chapter 4 as well during the battle. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Remember that from the book of Exodus? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now men, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it 
put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So they're still hoping. Maybe just kind of a random chance. Let's just make a little test and find out. The men did so, took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. So the Philistines set up a little test to see whether what's happened to them while the ark was in their possession was really always doing or just kind of a weird coincidence. And so the, the, the logic behind this test is they take two cows who have never been yoked before. In other words, they're not trained, they're not used to pulling carts, they're not, so it'll be unnatural for them to work together and pull in the same direction because they've never been yoked to anything before. And they have calves at home who are still nursing, and so they're going to have a strong maternal instinct to return to their calves, right? And so they shut up the calves at home, and they take these mother cows, and they yoke them to the cart, and they say, their logic is, if these cows, who have everything working against them to get all the way back to Israel, keep going straight, like they work together and pull the ark straight down the road into the Israelite village of Beth Shemesh, then clearly the Lord, Yahweh, was at work here. Or if they venture back to their home where their calves are, then must all have just been a coincidence. So they kind of set up this little test uh, to see what will happen. You should not be surprised to learn that the cows make it to Israel. The Philistines have received a clear message. Yahweh is behind all their plagues these past seven months. Don't miss God's mercy here. It sounds harsh. It sounds strong. He's afflicted them with tumors. He's killed many of them, right? But God is revealing himself to the Philistines at some level, at least giving them the awareness of his presence and his power and his sovereignty, God would be just and right in concealing himself from the Philistines, especially considering their, uh, their pagan idol worship, right? But he makes sure that they give glory to the God of Israel, like they said, so that his honor is restored among the people who assumed that they had defeated him and so that they have an opportunity to respond to this revelation with some version of repentance. Spoiler alert. They do not. In fact, they'll continue. Uh, we'll see them again in 1 Samuel as uh, in, in battle and approaching Israel to do them harm. But nevertheless, God has revealed himself to the Philistines in some way. You know, we can be prone, like the Philistines, to share his glory. Sharing the glory of Yahweh doesn't have to mean having a stone image in your home that you regard as deity. I doubt any of you are doing that. If you are, we should talk, all right? Um, it might look like a perfectly natural, normal life to the world around you, maybe even to your friends in the church. But when some other affection or interest or commitment 
pushes God to the sideline of your life, you've taken glory from God and shared it with something else. Could be almost anything. Sports, entertainment, you know, movies and TV and whatnot. Family, time with family, activities for the kids, right? That could become the most important thing to you. Let's be honest, it's usually just plain old self. It's just me. It's just, I elevate my own desires, my plans, my comfort above God. And that plays itself out in all kinds of things in my life. So it's worth us reflecting, self-reflectively answering the question, is God at the center of your life? In your speech, in your relationships, your decision-making, your spending of money, the management of your time, your use of technology, especially social media? Would someone looking at your life in all of these areas know without question that your first devotion is to the Lord? Not that someone looking in is always the ultimate test, but it's a starting place. If I look at my own life and how I spend my time and spend my money and make decisions and relate to others, is it clear even to me that God is priority to me? Or is he taken second or third or fifth place? So let's learn from the bad example of the Philistines not to share the glory of God with anybody or anything else. God alone deserves honor and reverence and worship. Well, we see from God's engagement with the Philistines that he will not share his glory. And so as the ark makes its way back to Israel, we're going to see that even among his own people, God will not be diminished. God will not be diminished. So look with me in verse 13 of chapter 6, and we'll see this, this account of the ark returning to a city of Israel in Beth Shemesh. Verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So these Philistine leaders were following from a distance, following the cows to see whether the ark would make it back. And so when they see that it does indeed make it all the way to Beth Shemesh and the people of Israel in that village have received it, they go back home to Ekron and they know now what has happened. And so the, the first scene here as the ark returns uh, is very encouraging. The people of Israel recognize the work of God in bringing the ark back to them without their help. They recognize the need to worship God. And look, he's even provided some cows for a bird offering. Sorry, cows. Um, and so they cut up the wood and they offer the cows as a burnt offering and they offer worship to God. And they celebrate and rejoice at the return of this 
of the Ark of the Covenant. Beth Shemesh, these men were probably Levites, descendants of Aaron, who God had appointed to be the priestly line. And so they know the work of, uh, of, of offering sacrifice, right? So they do this work uh, and offer sacrifice of the Lord, to the Lord. Then we have this little a summary in verses 17 and 18 of, um, it's, it's a formal official summary of the, the gift that the Philistines made to, uh, to Israel here. So verse 17, these are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. And it names the cities, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. All right, and so you just have this formal kind of listing out of what they provided. But then the story takes kind of a dark turn. The ark is returned to Israel, and they've greeted it with gladness and with sacrifice and with worshiping, and you think, all right, things are finally turning around, but look at the very next verse, 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So the ark has come, and initially it's greeted with gladness and worship, but then immediately Yahweh's commands are rejected. You see, back in Numbers chapter 4, God had given instructions to the priest on how to treat the ark. When they had to be in its presence, either for the priestly offerings or for transporting the ark, they were required to cover it very carefully and specifically with a veil from the temple, with a goat skin, with a blue covering, a blue cloth, and, and it says specifically, they shall not go in to look on the holy things, including the ark, even for a moment, lest they die. This is God's command to the people of Israel from centuries earlier, when he first established these rituals and routines of worship and how the people were to relate to God. And he set this rule, don't look upon the ark. And the language there, I think, in, uh, implies a, a sort of a inspecting of the ark or maybe a, a morbid curiosity about it somehow. But it violates God's explicit written and spoken commands at the time not to look on the ark. And so some of them do it anyway, and they die. There's a text thing here. You might have a footnote in your, if you've got an ESV Bible, you might have a footnote that says, where it says that he struck 70 men. You might have a footnote that says something like, or 70 and 50,000 or something like that. We need to get into a discussion on that. Uh, it seems as though some of the, the early manuscripts don't have the thing about 50,000 
in it, and it also is very unlikely that the village of Beth Shemesh would have had that many people living in it. So it's probably kind of a textual error. So it seems best to, to stick with how the ESV does this. He struck 70 men, all right? So probably not 50,070. Um, but so he struck 70 men, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Now in this swift act of judgment... God is reminding his people who have for several generations now ignored his word and forgotten his covenant that he alone is to be their God and that he will not abide their belittling of him in blasphemous speech or in lawless deeds. The people of Israel needed a reminder God is serious about his glory. He's serious about the holiness of his people. And he demands to be regarded with proper reverence and honor. That's what's lacking on the part of many, not all, certainly, but at least 70 of these men of Beth Shemesh. They did not regard the Ark of the Covenant and thus God himself with proper honor, with proper reverence. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They did not seem to have the proper fear of God. Now, this sounds weird to us, if we're just being honest. You look at that and you go, wow, really? He looked at the ark and died like 70 dudes got struck down just for looking at the ark? Isn't that an overreaction? Isn't that a little crazy? And I think that the fact that this seems insane to us is indicative of the fact that we have tended to cast a very pleasant, chummy image of God. I submit to you that we can scarcely imagine him dealing so severely with his people because we regard him more as friendly than we revere him as holy. We read, for example, in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. I'm sure you've heard that verse. Even non-Christians like to celebrate that verse. God is love. And, by, and we take that to mean that God is always nice. But that's not what love means, according to God, not according to the Scriptures. Sometimes love has hard edges. The New Testament is able to speak in one breath about the kindness and severity of God. In Romans 11, verse 22, he's kind and he's severe. He's merciful, but he's holy. He's not to be trifled with. Brothers and sisters, beware of using God's grace as an excuse for sin. Don't let your confidence in his love make you feel comfortable in disobedience. After all, God wants me to be happy is not usually a precursor to good, righteous, obedient living. It usually leads to sin. Or, after all, God has to forgive me, right? If I do this thing, God's loving, God's gracious, right? I'm a Christian, so Jesus already paid for it. So I'll just go ahead and then trust God to forgive me. God is not to be trifled with. God is to be honored, revered, obeyed. To obey him, we have to know his word. That's where he reveals himself. That's where he reveals his ways and his will. It's not just through an inner impression. I think God told me to do this, and so I need to go obey it. No, what's clearly revealed is in the scriptures. 
And that's what you are obligated under God's holiness to obey. What's here? And lest you think, well, that's just how God was in the Old Testament, because we can kind of do that, separate Old Testament God from New Testament God, right? Well, in the Old Testament, he was really mad. And in the New Testament, he's really nice. That's how we can oversimplify things at times. Take a look with me at a New Testament passage. I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, which is toward the end of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 26, the book of Hebrews says this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What's the knowledge of the truth? It's the saving faith. It's the knowledge that Christ suffered for sinners. I placed my trust in him and I'm forgiven of my unrighteousness and given a new heart and a new life with Christ. Right? That knowledge of the truth is just a summary of the gospel. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is New Testament. God hasn't changed. God didn't used to be holy and then he got nice. God is holy, holy, holy. God does not abide sin. He does not look with favor upon sin. He does not wink at it. He doesn't think it's cute. He hates sin and he will judge it. Now the good news for Christians is that that judgment is found in Christ. Christ stood in our place to take our penalty, to take our punishment upon himself. But even then, with the awareness of what Christ has done, if we continue to use his language, deliberately sinning, making provisions for the flesh, another verse says. Or as Paul says in Romans 6, should we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Right? Whenever we sin, there's more grace. Let's just sin, 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 sin. So there's grace, 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 grace. May it never be. That's Paul's response to that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You want to be in the hands of God, but you want to be there because you trust him, you obey him, you love him. Not because you've spurned him, you've ignored him, you've rejected him. A fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. So let's take care not to diminish the holiness of God. God is our friend. Absolutely. God is our friend. But that doesn't mean he's just like your drinking buddy, right? Doesn't mean he's just like your best pal. 
He's our friend because he's welcomed us to himself in kindness and mercy and grace through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. He's our friend, but he's still our God. He's still king. He's still judge. Let's be careful to treat him as such. So the people of Israel, they kind of respond the same way that, um, that the, the Philistines do. The, the people in Beth Shemesh, they go, how do we get rid of him? What do we do to get rid of him? Get away from me, God. We can't handle the holiness of his presence. And so they send messengers, verse 21, they send messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim. It's another uh, city in Israel saying, the Philistines have returned in the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. Eleazar, again, probably a descendant of Aaron. And so they've given charge for the ark into this, to this man, excuse me, to this man, Eliezer. So the ark of God has taken this journey through the cities of the Philistines, and by God's own hand, it's made its way back to its home, to the people of Israel. But even there, in the home of the people of Israel, where it belongs, God demands to be treated with honor and with reverence. And his people needed just such a reminder. So, in light of the severity of God that we've seen in these verses, and that strong word of warning in Hebrews 10, to not deliberately go on sinning, I want you to take a look at the question in verse 20. We're going to wrap up with this. In verse 20 of First uh, Samuel 6, where God has just struck down these 70 men. Look at what they say. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? This is the best question a sinner could possibly ask. This is the question we ought to be praying that our unbelieving friends and neighbors would ask. How can I stand before God? Because on the one hand, a sinner before a holy God can expect severity, can expect judgment. On the other, because of Christ... A sinner before a holy God who's hidden in Jesus, who's trusted in the sacrifice of Christ in his place. Well, the answer of who can stand before this holy God is the one who's hiding in Christ. So when an unbelieving friend or neighbor asks, what can I do to stand before God? We have an answer to that. In fact, we have the only answer to that. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And he becomes your shelter against that holy fury of fire of God's holiness. If you're in Christ, you have a place to hide. You have a refuge. The psalmist asks the same question. And answers it in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, where he says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? If God is up there tallying every time I 
curse somebody out of my mind or click on something I shouldn't click on or uh, gossip about somebody or cut somebody off in traffic and, you know, do unkind hand gestures or whatever it is that you're prone to do, if God's keeping a tally of that, who could possibly stand before a holy God? And then he says, but with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness. That's the hope. The hope is if we repent of sin and trust in Christ, he forgives. He forgives. It's crazy that this holy, severe, judge, righteous God could look on sinners like us and forgive and welcome and restore and adopt. It's crazy. But that's the gospel. That's the good news that we have. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to answer that very question. Who can stand before the Lord? And he says, the one who hides himself in Jesus Christ by faith. Let's pray.